0: Morning. Seems to be a season of traditions right now. Um, we are just about to put up a Christmas tree tomorrow. Who's putting up a Christmas tree tomorrow? Excellent. So Christmas season is upon us. So we're going to put up a tree and put on our favourite carols and we'll start going through with our family uh, different kind of Christian uh, Christmas messages from the Bible. It was also this last week it was my birthday and uh, I'm 41 years old, I know I look really a lot younger than that, but I'm 41, and uh, my boy Nathaniel wrote me a card and he said, goodness, he's really getting on, was the, on the title of my card. And, and so we have a little tradition on our birthday, it's similar, we, we eat probably like you, we have a cake and we sing a song, we sing happy birthday. And in our family, we, we usually go around the table and we, we ask, you know, what's something we can be thankful for about this person? And we go around. And I realised that was a very short conversation this year. I have to ask Sheree about that. <laughs> but traditions, we like to celebrate traditions. Some of them are, are, point, are, are great and some are hard to understand. The Pamplona Bull Run is an example of a tradition that's hard to understand. I like this little poster uh, But we celebrate traditions, don't we? Even the Australian cricketer Phil Hughes sadly died and you would have seen that maybe on the news and Australians were putting a cricket bat out in front and Cherie put a cricket bat out in front of our place last night. We we like to celebrate traditions. Why do we do this and why why do we mark occasions? We remember things. Why do we do this? We do it because we don't want to forget. We do it because we want to be reminded of what there is to be thankful for. We do it to reflect back on things, to remember what's important so we don't forget. Now, we're in Exodus, and the Israelites have come through the Red Sea, and they've been grumbling and complaining. And really, the pattern of their behavior is that they're forgetting. They've quickly forgotten, and the Bible says again and again in the Psalms, they did not remember what God had done for them. They quickly forgot. It's a dangerous sign that the Israelites don't know their God. Now, what we're seeing today is great examples for us about a remedy for a grumbling heart. And a big part of that is celebrating and remembering what God has done. This is something that can really help us in all of the seasons of our life, that we have patterns of remembering and marking and celebrating and giving thanks for what God has done for us. Now, that would be enough for one talk. And it's a big passage today, and I was tempted to just cut it there on that point but there is another important thread in this passage we're going to tackle as well and we see two really big and important principles playing out one is that God alone wins the victory he's sovereign and we see that playing out in this passage that he does it all and on the other hand every one of God's people has a role to play in God executing that plan so they seem to be contradictory don't they God does it all he's sovereign but yet we have an important part to play now if you're anything like me, you need to hear this, even though it seems maybe something you know, because I'm te- maybe you're like me, and you tend to forget these things and believe the opposite. Instead of believing God is in control, you believe that you need to be in control, that you need to save the day. And maybe instead of believing you have an important part to play in God's work, you tend to believe that you have nothing to contribute, that you don't really have anything to offer, they're two lies I'm tempted to believe. And so this passage is a helpful corrective to those things. So there's much for us to learn today. If, uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you tend to be someone who's tempted to be caught on the treadmill and over busy doing too much, this, there's a lot in this passage for you. If you're, if you're tempted to believe that maybe you don't have anything to offer in God's kingdom, then there's something in this passage for you. So there's lots for us here today. If you're tempted to waver in your faith in difficult times, then there's a lot in this passage for you. So I'll pray for us, uh, pray for me, and then uh, we'll we'll look at the text. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wonderful word. It brings life, uh, it brings light to us. It's living and active, it penetrates to our heart. We pray that you would do that this morning. Penetrate to our heart and change us, make us receptive to what you have to say to us Lord, uh, it's your word that needs to speak and not mine. We pray that you would do that today. Make us uh, people who know our God, know you. Make our faith strong. Help us to be uh, thankful people who celebrate what you've done for us. So teach us these things from your word today. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. So first section today is talking about how God alone saves the day and what our response is to that. So we see in verse 8, in this first section, in Exodus 17, the second half, we see that the Israelites are fighting their first battle. And it's against the Amalekites. And you can see in verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Now, this has been a difficult place for the Israelites, Rephidim. It was the place they complained about not having water. And the Lord brought them water. And now the Amalekites are attacking them. And we see a bit more detail in Deuteronomy 25, where it says this, Remember what Amalek did to you, this is Moses talking, on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way, when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So we see this, this attack by the Amalekites has some real malice in it. This, this isn't just over water. Some people believe it's they're trying to get at the water the Israelites had, perhaps. But you can see some real malice in what they're doing, picking off the Israelites who are lagging behind. And so the Amalekites really declare themselves to be an enemy of God and his people. We could focus a whole other talk on that, because I know that that's a, a, a target for a lot of atheists to talk about. We're not going to talk about that t- today. Uh, but we're going to talk about some other things here around it. Now... Israelites engage in this battle and what happens, you can see this in verses 9 to 13, see Moses goes up to the top of a hill and he holds up his staff and while he holds up his staff the Israelites prevail in the battle but when his hands fall the Israelites falter and they're not winning. So what are we to learn from this? How is it that the Israelites win? Is it through the might of Joshua's arm? It says there that Joshua prevailed. Is it Joshua who really won the day? Is it his military strength? Is it Moses' presence at the top of the hill, his leadership presence that wins the day? It's not either of those things. It's the Lord doing it. You can see how Moses holds up this staff. What's the symbol here? What's the picture? This staff is Moses' shepherd's staff. staff. But it's called, interestingly, it's called the staff of God. It's not called the staff of Moses. It's called the staff of God. What's the symbol here? It's that God is the shepherd of Israel. He's the one who's winning the victory, not Moses. God is winning the victory. Remember all the miracles that have happened so far. What happened in each case? When Moses did those wonders before Pharaoh, what did he use? He used his staff, didn't he? When he did the plagues... What happened? He used the staff. When the sea was divided, Moses touched the sea with the staff, and the rock, the water came from the rock via the staff, and this victory over Amalek. What's the point? It's not Moses. It's God winning the victory. He's the shepherd of Israel. He's the one. So people are to see this. Israel's to learn this, and we are to learn this, that salvation comes from God. He's the rescuer, and he's the deliverer. He alone wins the victory. It's not our strength. It's not our will. It's not our moral goodness. It's God from start to finish. It's not the way we often think, is it? We often think that it's up to us. We often think that we have to save the day. But here we see it's entirely the Lord's work in winning the victory. Now, what's our response to this? What does Moses do? You can see the way he responds. He, in verse 15, he builds an altar. He builds a monument to celebrate this, to commemorate the victory and give glory to God. And it's a great name he gives this altar. He calls it, The Lord is My Banner. You can imagine uh, Moses standing at the top of the hill and the troops looking up there and seeing Moses there. Moses is not pointing to himself but to God as the winner of this victory. We like to set up monuments, don't we? Uh, not long ago I went to, on a tour of Old Trafford, the uh the Old Trafford I didn't know, and here's Mike, there's one, uh, there's one guy who wasn't all that impressed by the tour, uh, in the change rooms, a Man City fan. But I, I was really struck, you know, by the, I know I, know I wasn't, who are the Man, Manchester United fans here? Yeah, sorry if I offend you. I, I mean, I know I couldn't appreciate the depth, but I could get a sense of the history in the place. Get a sense of the fact that there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of glory here and a lot of champions and a lot of heroes and a lot of a lot of things to celebrate. Huge cabinets of trophies. But the enduring the enduring monument that struck me most and stopped me in my tracks was on the way out, and it's this one. I wonder if you've seen it. The United Trinity. And so we have three champion United players there who between them apparently scored 665 goals. Uh, for Manchester United. If you're a Manchester United fan and you're there, what's the idea here by this monument? Is that we look to these men, we remember what these men have done and we don't want to forget what they've done. We remember the greatness of it. We glory in it. We celebrate it. What's our banner? Maybe you you get teary uh, during the Olympics when one of your countrymen stands on the podium and the flag is raised Sometimes that can be an inspiring experience. But what about us? What's our our true banner? It's not not just a flag that actually has no power in itself, not just something that's inspiring to us for its history, but it's a God who's living and active and alive right now, who intercedes for us, who's powerful. He's He's our banner. He's the one we look to. Christ is our banner. His cross is what we hold up high so we celebrate the cross. Now, there are more examples in this passage of the kind of celebrating. So we have this altar that Moses builds, and there's another one in the name he, the way he names his two sons. You can see this in chapter 18, verses 2 to 4. Now, I wonder if your name has any significance or meaning. Did your parents give you a name to, to convey some sort of idea? Sheree and I attempted to do this uh, with our first two children at least, our second, our, sec, our second two, the, the daughters, were really just pretty names or names inspired by Lord of the Rings elves and things like that. But we, we were a little bit more sort of spiritual with our first two. So Nathaniel we called our first child because, you know, we prayed a lot for a son and for a child and, and the Lord gave us Nathaniel. Nathaniel means gift of God. So that's why we called him that name. Our second boy, Hudson, was a real answer to prayer, an amazing answer to prayer. We won't go into that now, but one of the most profound answers to prayer in my life. And we gave him the middle name, Samuel, which means because I asked the Lord for him. So we marked that and gave thanks to God by giving them names. Now, Moses marks what God has done by giving his children special names. You can see this in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 18. After Moses had sent away his wife, Zipporah. His father-in-law, Jethro, received her and her two sons. I won't get started on men leaving their wives for the cause of ministry. That is a talk in itself, and I won't go into it. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper, and he saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now... What do these names mean? So Gershom, Moses, looks back to what he was. He was a foreigner. He was a fugitive. And Eliezer, his second son, God has helped me. He rescued me. It's a picture of the gospel right there, isn't it? This is what I was and this is what God has done to rescue me. He's celebrating what God has done. Another good example here is in the way Moses recounts what God has done to the people of Israel. Have a look at chapter 18, verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law, Jethro, about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. What a great example for us about what evangelism is like. Now this isn't, you wouldn't normally point to this as an evangelism kind of text, would you? What is evangelism? It's a scary word for a lot of us, isn't it? It's something that we feel guilty about, but what is it really? It's telling the story about what God has done. It's about celebrating what God has done by just telling people. Don't we tell people about the things that we enjoy, the things we delight in, naturally? You find a great kebab place down on the curry mile you want to tell your friends about it. Evangelism is telling this good news. The essential in evangelism is not just us mustering up the courage. It's about us delighting in this truth and it just coming out, celebrating it to other people. And we can see here something of a conversion for Jethro. It looks like a conversion, doesn't it? We'll we'll read on in verses 9 to 12. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and from Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came and all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in in the presence of God. So Jethro seems to come to know who God is through this message that he's heard. Faith comes through hearing, doesn't it? He didn't see the Red Sea parting. He didn't... He wasn't there when all these things happened, but he's rejoicing in the testimony of what God has done. And look at verse 11. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. And they celebrate and they worship, they eat a meal together and they mark the occasion with joy. Now, raises a big question for us here. What is your faith based on? On what can you put your faith so that you can say, now I know, I really know that This message of the the word is true, that Christ is true. Now I know my faith is secure. What is it that you base your faith on? This is an important question because your faith will be tested at the difficult times of life when things start going wrong. What can we base it on? What's going to keep your faith from being shaken in the times of sickness and tragedy? What's your faith based on that's going to protect you from those arguments of those seemingly knowledgeable atheists at work who come up with some strong reasoning against God, against Christ? What's going to protect you? What, what's your faith based on? It can't be on a set of ethics. It can't just be on that Christi- Christianity has good a good set of morals. That's, that's not a basis for our faith. Well, what is it? It's events that have happened in history. This is different. This makes the message of Christ, different to all other religions. It's based on events in history. We have the historical certainty of this man, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. That's what our faith is based on. We believe Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures as who he actually is because he's a man who lived and died and rose again. Now, this is really important for us in hard times when things start going south in our lives. Now, I'm going to look at a great example from the Psalms about this exact thing. I'm just going to read Psalm 77. So, if you want to turn there, you can, or it's on the screen. And notice how, in contrast to the Israelites who complain and who who struggle against God and test Him, this writer here he he goes through a process of wrestling in his faith and finds what his faith is based on. So, we're just going to read this out: Psalm 77, 1 to 20. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I thought about the former days. So we're jumping to verse 5. The years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? I wonder if you can relate to these questions. Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Can you relate to these questions? Maybe God's promises don't apply to me anymore. Maybe he doesn't love me anymore. Is is God real? Is he there? Has he abandoned me? Verse 10, then I thought, to this I will appeal to the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? Sounds like the song when they crossed the Red Sea, his remembering. Verse 14, you are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people. Have a look at what event he's recalling now. The descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very deeps were convulsed. Verse 19, your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So what event is he recalling in history? that's bolstering his faith. He's remembering this great, defining salvation event for Israel, which was the crossing of the Red Sea. That was the event in which they realized this was not just the God we've heard about, the God of, the, of Abraham and Isaac and Joseph. This is our God, our Savior. This was the defining salvation event for Israel. Well, the question for us is, what's our defining salvation event? Is it the Red Sea Crossing? No, it's great to look back and remember this event, but it's not that event. What is it? What's the defining, what's the huge salvation event we look to and remember and, 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 and can say, now I know that God loves me. Now I know his promises are true. It's, it's when Christ came to this earth, lived and died and rose again, and accomplished salvation for us. How do we know? 1 John 3.16, not John 3.16, 1 John 3.16 This is how we know, yeah, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is how we know. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So when you're struggling in faith, what do you do? Where's where's the bedrock in the stormy seas that you can stand on and be still? It's Christ, life, death and resurrection. The historical certainty of this man. That's an unassailable foundation for our faith. You know, the people of Israel quickly forgot what God had done for them. The Scriptures often say that, but how can we be people who practically remember and don't forget and, and try and learn uh, from Israelites? the Israelites' bad example and what can we learn from these good examples here? That we need to be people who cultivate patterns of thanksgiving and remembrance in our lives, that we celebrate what God has done. You know, it's easy for us as Protestant, Reformed, pre-church people to sort of avoid traditions, don't we? And rightly so sometimes in the sense that if they become empty and lifeless, then it's just a pointless religion we want to avoid, a bit like the Pharisees. But there is something in repetition and tradition that we need to think about that's relevant to us and beneficial. Annually, the way we celebrate Christmas and Easter, that kind of thing. What about weekly? We're given a cycle, aren't we? A pattern of a day of rest. It's important that we take time to reflect on God and what he's done. In the past week, in our lives, in the gospel, what about daily? I wonder how much are you cultivating a pattern of thanksgiving? How much are you practicing this, this uh, priority of thanksgiving, recalling to mind what God has done for you? That needs to be something we do again and again. We're told in Colossians to sing and make music in our hearts, to teach and admonish each other with all wisdom, to remind ourselves of what God has done and to sing and to celebrate. But daily we need to be in the word. Mike said this last week, is that we need to encourage each other daily. We need to be in the word daily so that we're reminded of what Christ has done. We can't expect to face the the huge challenges we have in life in faith if we're not in the word, if we're not hearing from God. I think about the book of Ephesians. And we need to be reminded of what we were and what we are. And if you look at the chapter 2 of Ephesians, it says, remember what you were. Make a practice of remembering what you were. We were dead in sin, we were without hope. It gives a long list, doesn't it? We were strangers to God, we were enemies. We were far away. But then in Ephesians 1, remember what you are now. Your sons, you're adopted, you're loved. You're chosen, you're forgiven, you're redeemed, you're blameless. This is what we are now. So cultivating patterns of remembering. Who was I before I was saved? And who am I now? And just being filled with thankfulness because of that. That needs to be, needs to be something we do. Colossians 2, 6-7, it says, Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the, in the faith as you were taught, and what? Overflowing with thankfulness. Imagine your own life now overflowing with thankfulness. What would it look like? Needs to come, doesn't it, from a real grasp of the gospel. You know, a few years ago I was in uh, the US coming back to Australia for, after a two-week trip. I was in Atlanta and I got to the airport and you know, punched in my flight details uh, in, into the kiosk, you know, into the computer, and it spat out a little ticket and said, your flight has already departed, you know. <laughs> So uh, you would think for a guy who had some sort of experience in the military that he would get his you know 24-hour time right, but I think I, I must have been going on a four o'clock flight and it was a two o'clock flight. So here I was in deep water, and so I go to the desk in disbelief and horror and ask for help to this lady, and you know she's very helpful, but she says to me, "Look, I don't like your chances of getting home because this is busy season and flights are booked, and you might have to wait here for five days." So, I'm thinking, oh no, I have to go. I have to phone my wife and tell her I'm not coming back. My kids are looking forward to me coming back. And Cherie needs to be relieved at the post for a little bit with all her kids and looking after for two weeks. So, I'm, 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 I'm in a state of real despair and horror here and disbelief. And I'm begging for help. And the lady's standing there behind the desk trying to reroute me through all these different places to get to my connecting flight, either in Dallas or in Los Angeles. And not really having any luck, she's trying, you know, all these different cities, Miami, Charlotte, all these different cities, and nothing's working, and it's not looking good. And I'm praying and pleading with God to do something, and I'm feeling utterly helpless and utterly stupid for my mistake. And eventually she smiles, and she said, there's been a last-minute cancellation, and I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to slot you in. And so I get on this flight, she gives me a boarding pass, which to me was like absolute gold, And she puts me on this plane that gets me just in time to Dallas for my connecting flight. Now, I can't tell you how relieved I was. I can't tell you how thankful I was, how many times I said to the Lord, thank you for bailing me out of this situation. I can't tell you how many times. I look back on that since that moment and I'm filled with thankfulness because of that. Now, for some reason, that impacted me deeply. Now, that was just a flight home. That wasn't really a huge deal in the big sweep of things, was it? That was just a flight home. If we could be a people who understand what God has saved us from, if we could be a people who grasp what we were, the situation that we were in, utterly lost, you know, objects of God's wrath, and now we've been redeemed into eternal salvation and glory with Christ, we could understand the difference between those things, then we would be people who celebrate and never stop celebrating what Christ has done overflowing with thankfulness. So let's be a people like this. May we be a people who celebrate, filled with thankfulness for what Christ has done. All right, that was the main item in the to- in the sermon today. N- another one here, the second one we're going to look at briefly, is the important role that you and I have to play in God's work. We said that God is sovereign. He is in control, and he does it all. He wins the victory, but also we have a part to play. One of the traps that we can fall into as people who lift up God's sovereignty is that we can think fatalistically. We can think, well, whatever happens will happen. God's in control and therefore it doesn't matter what I do. I wonder if you can relate to that thinking. What's the point of praying? What's the point of striving if He's, you know, if he'll save who he chooses to save? What's the point of sharing the gospel? We can easily think this way. I know I, I, can, I can be prone to think this way. Now, we see in this passage two examples of how important people's roles are in God's plan. Somehow he has woven our part in his sovereign plan, and we need to carry out that part faithfully. First, in the battle with the Amalekites in chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. Have a look at this painting here by John Everett Millay, who I think, I like this painting, captures the weakness of Moses, doesn't it? the weakness of these men these great men of the bible but what's what's their role Moses couldn't even stand up but he had a role to play in it so did Aaron and her holding up his arms now each person has a role to play if you're her in this battle you don't think you're doing very much do you holding up someone's arm but if you're a troop down on the ground you really your life depends on her doing his job doesn't it you need him to do his job now, maybe hers thinking, I wish I was a younger man and I could get out there and fight, but he has an important role to play in this. Now, another example is in the next chapter. Have a look in the next chapter, and we see Jethro recognizes that Moses is busy, frantic, overwhelmed, on the treadmill from morning till night, trying to manage two million, roughly, people of Israel. There's 600,000 fighting men, then you've probably got roughly 200 people. Sorry, two million people. That's a big bunch of people to be looking after. We think that the Tyndall's five kids is a handful. Imagine two million. <laughs> 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 it's true, isn't it, that we often, from some weeks, we have a lot on our plate, and it's hard to sort of free ourselves up from that. But often, the, there's an issue with our hearts when we're over busy. Not always, but often, there's an issue with our hearts... Perhaps we think that it all depends on us. Perhaps we're thinking like Moses, and we need to do it all. Maybe we're not thinking that this is God's thing, this is God's work and not mine. I need to let go of some things. Maybe we're driven to do some things the Lord actually doesn't want us to do. So Jethro gives Moses some wise counsel. Have a look at chapter 18, verses 17 to 18. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Now, some of us are over busy and it's not wise what we're doing. We need to get off the treadmill. We'll only wear ourselves out. And another thing we do when we're over busy is we prevent other people from doing the work that God calls them to do. One of my favorite, most helpful quotes is from a book called Spiritual Leadership by J. Oswald Sanders. And he says this, Jesus completed his life's work without any part spoiled, by undue haste, or half done through lack of time. His 24 hours a day was time enough to do the whole will of God. What a great point. You have time enough in the day to do the whole will, will of God. If you're thinking you wish you had eight days in the week, we're not thinking about what God wants us to do. We're thinking about our own agenda. So our hearts need to be content and rest in what God has for us to do. Not more, not less than he wants us to do. Other things we can let go and leave to God and to others. So Jethro instructs Moses on how to divide up the work. Have a look at verses 24 to 26. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided for themselves. Now, notice some people have more responsibility in terms of over people than others, but each one of them has an essential role to play in this whole outfit, in this whole community of people, in this work God has. And we know from the New Testament that the same idea is expressed in terms of a body, isn't it? That there are many parts, if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, just put that up here, Verse 12, it says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, all its parts, many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. In verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and each of you has a part in it. Do you believe that? You have an essential part, like her did holding up an arm, you have an essential part in the work of God's kingdom. And if you drop the ball in your roll, then the whole body suffers because of it. Now, I wonder if you're prone to, often prone to medical problems. One that I'm most prone to is a sinus infection. And I probably won't get that as much here because I'm not in the pool or the ocean as much as I was in Australia. But I often have had sinus infections and I get up in the morning when I've got a sinus problem. In a daze, my whole body feels like I'm shutting down and I can't get going, sometimes for one or two weeks. Now, I don't know what a sinus does. I know there's some doctors in here who could tell you. I know it's mostly space in there. But I don't know what a sinus does, but I can tell you the sinus is important because my whole body shuts down if it's not working. Now, maybe you feel something like a sinus in terms of God's people and the role that you have. Unseen, not quite sure what you're doing sometimes. But I want you to be encouraged and think about the fact that If you leave your part in things, then the whole body is not going to function as it should. So whether you're a mum changing nappies and washing clothes or whether you're plugging away in front of a computer screen or whether you're doing seemingly endless and pointless assignments at university or you feel like you're holding the arms of someone else or you're laying out chairs before church or, or putting out morning tea, you have a really important role to play younger people and students you have gifts to contribute to the church. Uh, older people your wisdom needs to be brought to bear on the younger lives around you. I want to put up a quote here that really encouraged me that was sent to me two days ago uh, from a friend of mine who I had lots of chats with he was a student at the time and I'm putting this up not to uh, because I don't even remember these conversations. I don't even remember what I said to be honest I'm sure it wasn't all that profound but this is, he, he got married on Saturday. And he said this on an email. He said, I did want to say how thankful I was for your counsel back when we initially broke up. So these two broke up and eventually got married. You encouraged me to continue to pursue her and reminded me that the position of my heart was the most important thing in discerning whether or not that was wise. Now, I can't even remember what I said, honestly. Um, I probably just said, look, just seek Christ first. I, I didn't know what his answer was. I barely remember. God is utterly sovereign And we both saw his hand, that's he and his now wife, both saw his hand so clearly in that whole process, but I wanted to say how thankful I am for the way he used you then, even just through a handful of conversations. How encouraging, you know, that somehow something I said, can't even remember what it was, was the Lord used it in the journey of these two eventually getting married. What a joy. Um, I can't remember what I said, but there it is. The Lord used me. Notice he says, God is utterly sovereign. But yet the Lord used you. We need to remember this. Don't be discouraged as you serve. Don't think that your role is pointless. But be content with the role you have and give yourself fully to it. Your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And pray. I think we need to be people who recognise that God is sovereign, but yet he, he uses our prayers powerfully. So let's close. I just, uh, this, here's an inspiring thought. What might the Lord do through us as Grace Church as we serve together? What victories might he win in Manchester through Grace Church as we all serve with our gifts together? What an exciting thought. So let's remember what God has done. Let's be thankful. Let's celebrate. Let's embrace the role he has for us in his body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thanks for reminding us of what you have done, that salvation is entirely of you. It's not of us. Uh, thank you for delivering us this uh, With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, you accomplished a salvation much greater than the crossing of the Red Sea when you defeated sin and death uh, in Christ's body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by your wounds we are healed. Lord, you've saved us, rescued us from sin. Lord, what man could rescue from sin but you did? Uh, Praise you for that. Lord, help us to be a people who overflow with thankfulness. Now, reminded, never forgetting what we were, what we were once destined for, and yet you redeemed us and had chosen us for a great salvation, to, to be your people. Thank you. We praise you. And we ask that, Lord, we'd not forget, we'd celebrate, and that we'd get our hands in um, the harvest fields, the, the role that you have for us. May we each um, throw our hands in, knowing that you have work for us to do, and it's important work. Uh, We're not to just stand back and watch, but you want us to engage in the work of the gospel. So may we each know our part in that. Be content in it and not try and do too much, but uh, be joyful and glad and serve with the strength that you provide. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.